Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Cersei Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 66, Snake Blood. Today's proverb comes from G.K. Chesterton. I'll read it twice. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. One more time. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. I wanted to do an episode of the show about travel because my family is about to undertake a 7,000-mile-long trip across the U.S. and back again. This will be the second summer in a row that we've done this. Last summer, we drove from Richmond, Virginia to Pullman, Washington, and then back, and it was about 6,000 miles. This summer, we're tacking on another 1,000 miles through California. And the point of the trip is to see family, to see friends, but also to see the country, to see all of the beauty of the Western United States. I was astounded by what I saw last summer. The Badlands, 
Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone. And we're tacking on uh, Yosemite this year. We're going to see a lot in Yosemite. We're going to see the Grand Canyon, Mesa Verde. And we're all quite excited to do it. So we're currently getting ready for the trip, planning out all the things that we'll do in the 100 hours that we are together in the car. And travel is exciting. Travel is a little dangerous, not too dangerous in the US, although we're going to be going through Las Vegas, we're going to be going through some very, very hot parts of the country where cars break down readily. So there is some risk involved. For all these reasons, I wanted to talk a little bit about travel and I wanted to think about travel in preparation for the trip. It's Tuesday when I'm recording the show and we'll leave Friday morning. Man, I have to say it is really difficult to find a good proverb about travel. It's easy to find proverbs on travel. It's very difficult to find a decent one on travel. And that's because proverbs about travel are some of the most abused proverbs there are today, I mean. And I would say that this has been true for 10 years, maybe a little more. Social media has rearranged the meaning of travel. So you can find all these great old proverbs about travel, all these great old sayings, like this one from Mark Twain. Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. When I hear that, I want it to be true. I can imagine a world where it's true. But I would not say that that proverb is true most of the time, at least not anymore. That's the sort of saying which we now most commonly encounter as a sort of justification for traveling to the Bahamas or Machu Picchu. Traveling to these places just to get a photograph of yourself standing in front of them. Travel is this bizarre sort of thing in the world of social media. Travel has become this sort of hybrid of virtue, virtue signaling, entertainment, but enterprise as well. There are so many ways to make money these days by way of travel. Travel's become lucrative. How strange. Travel used to be one of the great privileges of people with means. But now travel has become a kind of job. People are paid to travel, not to travel to some place to give a presentation or to sell some expensive thing in a far off location, but paid to travel and take pictures of themselves traveling. Travel is one of the great pastimes of the social media influencer. 
And that seems very trite. It's even aggravating to have to bring up such things on the show. But social media influencer is now one of the most common dream jobs of American children. Used to be astronaut, fireman, now influencer. Great dream. And influencers have stolen all the great proverbs about travel, like the one from Twain. But here's another one. Here's one of the worst proverbs about travel comes from one of the greatest theologians of all time. The world is a book and those who do not travel read only a page. St. Augustine. I can't for the life of me track down where he said this. As a matter of fact, I have several other emblematic quotes on the subject of travel, and it was difficult to verify them. I don't distrust them, though. I can believe that Augustine said this. But I have to think that whatever Augustine meant by travel, what Mark Twain meant by travel, travel being fatal to narrow-mindedness, is not generally true anymore. It's not true as a matter of course. And it even seems that travel confirms narrow-mindedness and bigotry in our day. And I so often encounter, I mean, tell me if you have not seen this, travel has sort of been hijacked by the wellness industry and the self-care people so that it's very hard to tell self-care, wellness, and travel apart. And so travel has become this thing that's no longer imagined as expensive and dangerous. It's really more of a thing that you have to do in order to find yourself, or to lose yourself, or to be yourself, which are all interchangeable these days. So we often encounter the most common way in which we encounter the proverb, the world is a book and those who don't travel only read a page. The most common way in which we encounter this proverb is in scripty wine mom font on inspirational meme pages geared towards people in their 30s and early 40s. And as I've contended before, all proverbs split the difference between the person who gives them and the person who receives them. Half of the meaning of a proverb is the words themselves and the other half is the situation that supplies the opportunity to say the proverb. So if uh, fashionably dressed young women all by themselves in swimming suits uh, on vacation in the Cayman Islands are the sort of people who say, the world is a book and those who don't travel only read a page, then the meaning of the proverb has been severely compromised. If you do a Google search for travel quotes, travel quotes are almost all inspirational. It is hard to distinguish the, tr the quote about travel and the quote that aims to just make you feel good and say, mmm, yes, sort of general assent, the sentimental assent to some positive sounding claim on these sort of compilations of quotes about travel, inspirational quotes about travel, you get things like this one from Lovell Drachman. Blessed are the curious, for they shall have adventures. 
Oh, so sweet. If we were meant to stay in one place, we'd have roots instead of feet. Or this one. One's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. These are emblematic of the sort of quotes that you find on inspirational pages, inspirational meme pages, pages devoted to travel, Instagram accounts where people conspicuously consume plane tickets and taxi fare and generally try to find only the most photogenic locations on earth. Uh, I'm yet to find somebody in the slums of Detroit handing out care packages to the poor and explaining the whole thing with blessed are the curious for they shall have adventures. You would actually, in the case of such an adventure, explain it by way of the Great Commission, the Golden Rule, something like that. One of the reasons I find quotes about travel so banal is that travel is very expensive and quotes about travel tend to merge this idea of spending a lot of money to please yourself with virtue, as though it's morally good to please yourself in as exotic a way as you possibly can. So how do we rescue the concept of travel from all of these shallow virtue signaling influencers and wellness gurus and self-care gurus. It's worth saving, of course, because travel can be enriching in ways hard to match by staying at home. I think the only real way of saving travel from the banality of what it's become is to redefine it. Or maybe not to redefine it, maybe to make some very careful distinctions. And that takes us back to today's proverb from Chesterton. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. Now there's not a lot to deal with there's not a lot to work with in this saying. It's not all that specific. It's very vague. It's very general. It's uh, this incredibly subtle grammatical difference that Chesterton wants to draw between the traveler and the tourist. But I think that that's what's necessary. These kind of subtle distinctions can save travel from the banality that has come to possess it. Now, before going further, I should say that Chesterton distinguishes between two ways of leaving the house, let's call it, not to be redundant. I don't want to say two ways of travel. I want to say two ways of leaving the house. Chesterton says there's two ways of leaving the house. There's the tourist and the traveler. I don't want to limit him to this or confine him to this but I believe that the distinction that Chesterton draws here is really only understandable 
if we add a third way of leaving the house, maybe even the most important way of leaving the house. So here's my theory. This is my attempt to interpret today's proverb. There are three ways of leaving the house. There is the tourist, there is the traveler, and there is the pilgrim. Now there aren't many pilgrims anymore. The modern world does not produce pilgrims. Even modern churches don't produce a lot of pilgrims. And the reason for that is that a pilgrimage is a journey to holy, a holy place. But very few modern people believe that a place can be holy. And of those people who do believe that a place can be holy, and there's not many of them, fewer still believe that going to a place, a holy place, can make a man holy as well. We don't accept this because we don't believe in the objectivity of holiness. And because we don't believe in the objectivity of holiness, we don't believe in holy objects. And this, despite the many holy places referenced in scripture. I could be wrong, have not taken a survey of this, but I would wager that places are the most commonly described things as holy in all of scripture. There's probably more holy places than holy anything else's in scripture. I'm not talking about miracles here. Just talking about holiness, set apart for the knowledge of God. So, in the medieval era, late antiquity, up on through the Baroque period, there's a confidence in holy places. And there's all sorts of stories about people who journey to holy places and bring back holy things, and there are miraculous cures associated with them. Now, while I accept that, as reality, as history. I'm not even arguing for that in this moment. All I'm arguing for is the holiness of some places. Church names, certain streets in Jerusalem or Damascus, certain cemeteries. The pilgrimage is a journey to a holy place. There is no pilgrimage without a holy thing to see at the end. And the idea of the pilgrimage is the pilgrimage is a sort of prayer you say with your feet. I talk about this often in my class on the Divine Comedy. Being offered again next year, if you want to take it. All throughout the comedy, Dante is the pilgrim. He's on a journey to see God. Dante is common. He's on a journey to see something uncommon and bring it back to the common world that he comes from. So the pilgrim makes a journey to see something holy, a holy place, a holy object, a holy building, something holy. Now, a pilgrimage is never fun. It's never easy. In an essay, A Stone from the Cathedral, Zabinyev Herbert, one of my favorite poets of the 20th century, does some remarkable micro-history on the building of the Chartres Cathedral. 
And he describes the pilgrimage that, uh, that many people took to the building site. Where the first thing they would do, and I'm talking about farmers, often enough farmers who could barely afford to leave their farms for a couple days, let alone the two weeks that a pilgrimage requires. And so a pilgrimage was this sort of once in a lifetime, maybe twice in a lifetime sort of event. Before they would go to see the holy thing, they would go to a quarry. And they would tell the mason, a mason who worked at the quarry, what cathedral they were going to, and then they would purchase a stone at the quarry site to be laid in the wall of the cathedral. And the stones that they would purchase were cut 50, 60, 70 pounds. And they were expensive, so you would save your money. You would save your money to buy a stone at the quarry. You would buy the stone, and you would carry it 15, 20 miles. 70-pound stone, sharp edges. You'd carry it 70 miles. And depending on the size of the wall, you might lay the stone. You might get to lay the stone yourself into the wall. And it was backbreaking work. Backbreaking work to get your family of five to walk 20 miles to the cathedral, maybe even walk 10 miles to the quarry site first to buy a stone. There was nothing pleasant about it. And the pilgrimage taught you about the nature of life. Your whole life is a pilgrimage. Your whole life is a journey back to God, back to the Empyrean from which your soul traversed the cosmos to encounter your little unborn body, and then in death to retrace its steps back to God. But it wasn't easy. It wasn't, wasn't for pleasure. And you taught yourself, you preached yourself this sermon about the meaning of your whole life. And the, the pilgrimage was a microcosm of your whole life. And Jesus Christ didn't set up an easy life for you, but a life of renunciation, self-abnegation, denial. So that's the, that's the pilgrimage. We don't have many of those anymore. Not many pilgrimages, at least not in this country. What is the tourist? Well, the tourist is not up for anything which is unpleasant. The tourist and the pilgrim are sort of opposites. The tourist is a man on vacation. The tourist has no ambition. He has an itinerary. He has a list of things to do, and they're all pleasant. That's what you do when you're on vacation. You make yourself a list of pleasant things to do. The tourist is willing to encounter new things but he's only really interested in new things that he suspects will be pleasant. There may be a sort of open-mindedness that benefits the tourist, lest you waste your time looking for a Burger King while wandering around Paris. There is a sort of open-mindedness that makes the life of a tourist or the enterprise of a tourist more enjoyable. 
But open-mindedness is not a virtue. You shouldn't expect a greater crown of glory in heaven because you are open-minded. I would even argue, as I have elsewhere, as I've begun arguing often enough lately, that beyond a certain age, open-mindedness is more likely a vice than a virtue. Now, this is nothing against the tourists, I should add. I will play the part of the tourist often enough this summer when I go to see the Grand Canyon, about as touristy as it gets, and I'm excited to do this. So, I'm not... I'm not condemning the tourist. I'm not saying the tourist is a bad person. But what I am saying is that the tourist is the opposite of the pilgrim. That the pilgrim is not in it for pleasure. The, the pilgrim wants salvation. Whereas the tourist wants pleasure. And that leaves us with the traveler. The traveler who, according to Chesterton, sees what he sees. Between the tourist and the pilgrim, the traveler is really closer to the tourist. I'm not going to flatter you. Won't flatter myself. The traveler is closer to the tourist. And yet, the traveler has a mind for something other than pleasure. And it's with that idea that we go back to today's proverb. The traveler has a mind for something other than pleasure. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. Now, what sort of thing does, does the tourist come to see? I mean, as a tourist this summer, I, have, I am going to see the Grand Canyon. About as spectacular as natural wonders get. And my whole itinerary of things to see this summer is a list of spectacles. I have made a list of spectacular things to see, and I'm going to go see them. And when I come back from my trip, hopefully I can say that I saw what I came to see. That I intended to see the Grand Canyon, and I was not foiled in this. The traveler doesn't have a rigorous itinerary, though. The traveler regards the trip more as a sort of agreement you make with the world. And half of the agreement remains unknown to you. And you sort of figure out what the world has agreed to give you along the way. Now, a lot of what the traveler is open to that the tourist is not is nature. The traveler is open to see what's common. He's open to see what's merely natural, not necessarily what's spectacular. The tourist doesn't make a list of common average things to see. Why would you make a list of average things to see and then travel hundreds of miles and risk danger and spend so much money to see common things? But the traveler is willing to see common things. The traveler is interested in common things. The traveler is fascinated by what TV show or what TV commercials look like in foreign countries, as Christian Slater says in True Romance. Isn't it amazing? The commercials in foreign countries. That might seem like the sort of sentiment that's overly beholden to pop culture, but I think that there's actually something to it. I think that there is something sort of profound about encountering other people's visions of 
nature of learning what is common and average to other people. And that's what the traveler is open to. The traveler is open to instruction about nature. The traveler sees what is common and is willing to work to be astounded by what is common to other people. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.